Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Brad. I'm a pastor here at River City. Um, I'm kind of a junkie for like uh, business and entrepreneurial stories. Like um, uh, back when like the Shark Tank show started, like I loved that show and just loved the idea of like this moment where someone has an opportunity to kind of pitch this dream that they have. Um, uh, kind of after that, there's been kind of a wave of like podcasts and other programs like focusing uh, on what it looks like for uh, a business to start. And I think one of the things that uh, is the most interesting or kind of interesting to me is this concept of like the pitch like this, this, this kind of uh, as it's referred to like an elevator pitch moment like this moment where you have this opportunity in like 30 seconds like as you're waiting for an elevator to come or as you've just stepped into an elevator with uh, your dream investor this person that might be able to support what you're doing having this short amount of time to, to pitch them on your idea and I think this is so interesting because I, I think the pressure uh, of that time constraint really uh, shows is whether or not an entrepreneur can boil down their idea into a succinct story that, that makes sense to this person of kind of, well, what is my idea? What is this problem uh, that, that exists in the world? And how is my idea going to solve it? And then ultimately, uh, the question is, how, how are you going to make your money back if you invest into this? How is my solution for this problem going to equal a return on investment for you, um, as we come to First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen, as we're working through this book, uh, it struck me how in this chapter, what Paul's going to do is he's kind of going to give what is the real elevator pitch for Christianity. What is the the elevator pitch? The short, succinct, really one of the most um, um, clear and small presentations of what is the basic truth of this thing that we call. The gospel. And so if you wouldn't mind doing this, uh, if you want to flip your Bible, if you brought one with you, if you got one on your phone, you can tap there or you can just follow along on the screen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, that's where we will be today. Um, just to warn you, uh, usually when we preach through a, a, a book or a section of a book, we go really kind of literally verse by verse. We're going to jump around in verses 1 through 11 today a little bit. If you're a, a super type A, like, no, we must work through a state straight line, just walk out now. Just go. Um, this is going to be hard for you. We're going to bounce a little bit. It bothers me a little bit, but, but I think it's going to be helpful for us to see uh, what Paul is trying to communicate in an order um, that's helpful to us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 11. Uh, also struck me that uh, we only have, uh, I believe it's uh, including this week, um, four more weeks in this book. So uh, we'll, we'll be in chapter 15 uh, for the next couple weeks, and then we'll close it out uh, right here before the Christmas season starts. For those of you for whom it didn't start on November 1 with the Christmas music, I wait for Red Cup Day. Um, if you don't know what that is, it's a national holiday where Starbucks changes their cups over to red. Not really a big Starbucks fan, but I am there on Red Cup Day. And I listen to the T-Swift uh, Christmas album on the way over and the Justin Bieber one on the way home. And that's just how I roll. And it's a good day. And that's the day I start the music. And then we wait for the decor um, until I feel like the tree can live through the period before Christmas. That's enough about me. First Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Uh, Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preach to you. Uh, in the book of Corinthians, we're coming to this shift. We're moving off of this long uh, few chapters on spiritual gifts and order in the church. Now we're moving to really what is the final topic of discussion for Paul. And the topic that Paul is moving into is to discuss the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And therefore, because this is a natural implication for Paul, the resurrection that's going to come to those who believe in, who follow, who have trusted in the good news 
of the gospel. And Paul says the foundation for this argument that he wants to make about the resurrection of believers is the gospel itself. And so he calls him, he says, I want to remind you, brothers, of this gospel that I preached to you. Now, that word gospel is a word that we use uh, a lot here at River City Church. Um, in fact, if you look at our vision statement over here, um, we even say that, that our goal is to spark a movement of gospel-centered churches. And so that's an important word, uh, gospel. Uh, this is a Greek word, uh, euangelion. Literally, this word just means to herald good news. Uh, there are a lot of different uh, kind of origins of how this word came about. Um, I think one of the most interesting ones uh, for me that, that kind of speaks into what uh, what we mean when we say gospel or what the, the kind of content of something that would be good news um, is actually from the Hebrew origins of this word, um, which had to do with uh, a good tidings generally uh, when, when a regime change would come into a nation. And so it was this idea that, that a, a coming king would come in and, and come to rule over a nation, or a king would die and be replaced, and this was a good king, and people were excited about this new leadership that was coming in, this kind of change in their culture, the way this leader was going to influence them, the way that he was going to identify them. And so they would go around saying, good news, good tidings of this king who has now come to lead our people. Um, and, and the gospel is that. The gospel is good news. is news that is worth heralding and sharing. But it's not the good news uh, about a human king or a leader who has come to lead our people. It's the good news about the Son of God who has come to be our king. The one who would provide for us. The one who would save us. Us. And so we'll skip down to verse 3 because what Paul wants to do here is he wants to remind them, like we said, of this elevator pitch, of this short, succinct version of this gospel that he shared with the people. Skip to verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Now, Paul's clear here right off the top. He says, uh, I delivered you of first importance. That is the, the thing that was the first thing both in, in timing, like the first thing that Paul said to them when he got there, as well as the most important thing that Paul had to teach the Corinthians when he arrived there to plant this church was the truth of the gospel. Um, he's clear also that he says, this is something that I received, right? Paul's not claiming to have, have made up the gospel or written the gospel. Paul says, this is the good news. This is the truth that I also received. And then he steps through these different parts of it, these components of the gospel. The first being that Christ died for our sins. Uh, now, if you know anything about Christianity, um, this is probably the thing that you know. Um, if you grew up in, in West Michigan or any sort of Christian context, you've probably heard this phrase before that Christ died for our sins. And, and certainly, uh, Christ's death and his death uh, as a substitute for or as uh, a placeholder for the death that you and I deserved to die is a huge part of the gospel. Uh, it is a huge part of the truth of how God planned to save us. That, that what we learn from the story of the Bible is that you and I had this problem in our sin. Uh, sin being anything we do, because we were created to be image bearers of God, right? Uh, in, in the first chapters of the Bible, in Genesis 1 through 3, it says that when God created man and woman, he created them in his image. 
He created them to reflect who he was. And so sin is any way that we fail to reflect the character of God in our nature, in our thoughts, in our attitude, in our very being. Any way that you have failed to live up to who God is, is what the Bible defines as sin. Any time that you have thought something that's not a thought that God would have, any time you have done something that's not something that God would have done, you have stepped outside of the image of God that God created you to be, you have broken this relationship and you've sinned. And the Bible is really clear in the book of Romans that, that, that sin has a penalty. And the penalty for that sin is death. That our sin has separated us from God. We see this also in that Genesis narrative. That the minute that Adam and Eve make that kind of age-old story choice of choosing to eat this fruit. That they were commanded not to eat off of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. That they now have broken something between them and God. That in their sin, in this failure to reflect God's attitude, his nature, his mind, his being, they have sinned and they have broken this relationship. And the result of that is instead of living in harmony, in peace forever in that garden, that they're now destined to die. From dust you came, God says, and to dust you will return now because of this. And so Christ comes in that he might pay the penalty for our sin. That Jesus comes in, that he would be a substitution, that he would stand in the place, that he would stand between us and God, and that he would take the wrath of God that was meant for us. Ready for an illustration you're going to wish you didn't hear? I'm going to apologize off the top. Makes me think about Harry Potter, right? All right, there's this moment. Julia, stop it with that face, okay? This is good. I planned this. This didn't just come to my head right now. We'll see how this goes. There's this moment in Harry Potter, right, where uh, Harry Potter and he who must not be named, we won't say his name, this is church, uh, are, are in this battle. And so they, 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 they try and cast spells on each other. I'm going to stop acting out in case somebody takes a video of this. Um, they try and cast spells on each other, and there's this thing that their wands lock, right? And they, they can't cast this spell on each other. And my daughter will explain to you why later, because she's more of a scientist than I am. Uh, it was something to do with the core of their wands, I believe. Same feather from a phoenix. And I, okay, I know a lot, Okay. And so their wands lock, but, but this thing happens. That in this moment when their wands lock, like all of these like memories of the past come out. And there's this image of like all these people that were like important to Harry, the protagonist of the story. And it's like they're standing between him and, and this evil force, this thing that's going to destroy him. And he's nowhere near powerful enough, but there's, there's this intermediary in the middle. And they are taking like all the weight of this evil power that's coming his way. And it makes me think about this when I think about about Christ as my substitution. That there's, this, there's this concept that, that because of our sin, because we have violated our very command from God about who we should be, that the wrath of God is upon us. And that is a real thing. That God is righteously frustrated with us. That he is, is good. That he wouldn't be a good God if he wasn't upset with our sin. He wouldn't be a good God if he wasn't devastated by the way that we fail to reflect who he is. The way that we've stepped outside of the creation uh, mandate that we would reflect and show the love of God to the world. He wouldn't be a good God if that didn't frustrate him. If that didn't ignite his righteous anger. And so his anger is bearing down on us because we deserve it. And then Christ steps between and he takes the weight of that anger on himself. And that image, I mean, to me, like, it's really easy to just, like, do the Easter story. Like, yeah, Christ died on the cross for my sins. And, like, and like to use that as almost a phrase that we forget. But this image of the Son of God who deserved none of God's wrath. 
who was God himself, who was the perfect reflection. Uh, Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the visible manifestation of who God is in every single way, that he is God. And as God's son, that's how we behold who God is, is that we see Jesus. This is perfect Jesus, deserving of no punishment whatsoever, steps in, steps in front of the car, takes the wrath of God that you and I deserve. Paul says, I delivered to you a first importance, this truth that Christ died for our sins. Uh, next, he says that, that Christ was buried and raised. Uh, like I said, if you know anything about uh, Christianity, you probably have heard about the death of Jesus. Um, I think often uh, we don't think as much about the resurrection of Jesus and the way that the resurrection of Jesus plays into our lives. And that's why I'm really excited. Um, even in this point, I'm going to try and uh, limit what I say because we're going to spend two weeks really on what the implications of the resurrection are for our lives and how that plays out for us. But Paul, uh, Paul says here that, that it was also he was buried and raised, that, that Jesus died, that then three days later he came from the grave, that this truth is the truth that makes us have hope in these lives that we now live. That, that in the same way that you and I were knit together with Jesus, if we put our faith in him, if we trust in him to take the penalty of our sins, to be that substitution, to take that penalty that we deserved in the same way that we become one with Christ in his death, Romans 6 says that we also become one with him in the resurrection. That we are knit together with him. And so when Jesus rises from the dead, this gives us hope that you and I too can have new life if we place our faith in Jesus. That he not only comes to offer us forgiveness from our sin and the transgressions and the sins that we commit every single day, but he offers us new life and freedom from this death to which we were condemned. He says that he was buried and he was raised on the third day. And then Paul, in remembering the truth of the gospel and sharing this really succinct version of the gospel, says, after he, after he raised from the dead, he says he appeared to people. First, he appeared to people that knew him. It says he showed up to Peter, uh, who knew Jesus really well. Cephas is uh, Peter's other name. Then he shows up to the 12 disciples, these men who intimately knew who Jesus was. There wasn't going to be any trickery of whether or not this man before them was Jesus. But he didn't just appear uh, to his followers. Then he shows up in, more, in front of more than 500 people. And I love this short phrase where Paul says, uh, some of them are asleep, meaning they've died, but many of them are still alive and right here to look at and talk to. Paul says, if you have any doubt over the resurrection of Jesus, and really for Paul, he's not even really trying to prove the resurrection of Jesus in this passage because the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that Jesus didn't stay in the grave was just common knowledge and easy to vet in this day. Paul didn't even feel the need to defend the resurrection of Jesus. He's using this to defend the resurrection of you and I if we place our faith in Jesus in the coming verses. Because Paul believed that it was so easy for them to verify this resurrection. He says, look, there's, there's hundreds of people you can go and talk to and ask about this. Because he, he appeared to many. Now, like I said, uh, Paul's goal here is not to try and prove the resurrection of Jesus. That's not the intent of this passage. But, but as we read it, um, it does rise up for us uh, this kind of question about the resurrection of Jesus, uh, about the validity of that resurrection. And so um, I, I thought it'd just be helpful. This is what I thought was a really helpful video clip, just to think through some of the proofs and implications um, of the validity of the resurrection of Jesus. So we'll watch this together here for a few minutes.
The word proofs is a loaded term in philosophy, and in many cases people will push back at us for using that in the Christian faith, but the Bible itself, Acts 1-3, says that with many convincing proofs, Jesus appeared to his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection. In fact, the apostles were faced with this accusation that they had actually stolen the body of Jesus. And so, as early as the New Testament, all the way to this present day, there have been attacks on the notion that Jesus was raised from the dead. And through the next almost 2,000 years, if we were to come up to today, there are a series of what we call counter theories to the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus through the centuries has responded to these counter theories, such as, well, his body was stolen, or maybe he wasn't really dead when he was put in the tomb, and so on, have been responded to powerfully such that I'm convinced today the very best answer is, in fact, rationally that Jesus was historically raised from the dead. Now some of the actual historical evidences that have been discussed through the centuries are that Jesus was really dead. That is to say, there's no question that he just swooned when he was put into the tomb. The Romans knew how to kill you when they crucified you. Two, the fact is that his tomb was empty. The early Christians even lost where the actual tomb is. We don't know for sure even where you're taken as a tourist today is actually where he was buried. Why? Because they didn't care about it. He was raised from the dead. His enemies would have presented his body were he actually still in the tomb. Three, his disciples believed that they were seeing Jesus after his resurrection, that is in a post-mortem raised state, so much so that they were willing to die for this. This is remarkable. And in fact, they changed for their belief system. These early believers were Jewish, and so they began to worship on the first day of the week, that is Sunday instead of uh, the Sabbath day, they, had, they celebrated the Lord's Supper, which is a proclamation of his death and burial and resurrection until he comes, and baptism, which was a symbol of buried with him in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Interestingly enough, the various theories like swoon or conspiracy or they lost the body and so on, only a handful of these are still used today by skeptics. And the irony is they fail miserably simply to deal with what now the majority of New Testament scholars, even those who are not Christians, agree on those historical facts that I presented. The bottom line is the significance of the resurrection of Jesus is intensely personal. The reason is simply that if he's not raised from the dead, then Christianity is silly. There's no forgiveness for our sins. My having lived my life believing that he's raised from the dead was a waste. I could have lived it any other of a number of ways. But if he is raised from the dead, then in fact, the hundreds of millions of people who've trusted in him through the centuries really do have hope for eternal life. I remember 43 years ago when I was not a Christian, 20-year-old pagan, hated Christianity, yet woke up on Easter morning with a bad hangover as a hippie with long hair. God has a sense of humor, it seems. I had been told recently by Christians 
that on Easter, that was the day they celebrated Jesus having been raised from the dead. And the fundamental question of life that I was facing, like, is there a God and could I be forgiven for the evil that I actually was fully caught up in and was convinced I was guilty of, could I be forgiven? I didn't connect all those dots, but something bothered me that morning. This is the day Jesus rose from the dead. And that's what makes Christianity so very special. The love of God displayed in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus for us has been demonstrated to be true. And that's what gives me hope. And it should you too, if you belong to him. The resurrection of Jesus gives us hope that there is life beyond this life that we are living now. And so the resurrection was central to Paul's argument and is central to the truth of the gospel, uh, that Jesus died for our sins in our place, that he rose from the dead, offering us new life. Um, if, if that stuff was interesting to you, if you, you're looking for more resources, um, there's, there's a simple kind of good starter book um, called The Case for the Resurrection by Lee Strobel. Um, interesting, um, he spoke about this here for him personally as well as for Lee Strobel, that it was the research into these things that, that, that brought about their conversion. Um, the, as they thought more about the truth of the resurrection, as they looked into this and researched this as skeptics that they heard and saw the truth of Jesus in the gospel. I think that's just in and of itself such a cool testimony um, to what we believe um, uh, for these uh, people to look into it and be convinced um, as people who are in opposition to it. Another uh, quick thing that I thought was interesting as I was reading more about this personally, was uh, in, in some of Lee Strobel's work, he talks about the fact that, that, that outside of the Bible, we have a, at least nine other sources that reference the resurrection, that reference Jesus as walking, living, and breathing after his death. And those are extra-biblical, uh, not necessarily Christian sources. So it's just really interesting to dig into and really interesting to think more uh, about the truth of the resurrection as well as the centrality of the resurrection. So, so Paul presents the gospel in this way. And, and if you're uh, here, you know that we've done something that we shouldn't do as we work through this is that we've skipped a few words, right? We've skipped a few words and we've skipped a few words that were repeated time and time again. Let me read you three through seven again. It says, for I delivered you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that then he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Uh, there's this phrase in there, in accordance with the scriptures. And that's an important phrase because when Paul talks about the gospel, when he gives this elevator pitch for the truth of Christianity, one of the, the central truths of Christianity is that the death and resurrection of Jesus were predicted hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born or walked the earth. That Paul, as he looks at the Old Testament, sees uh, these passages uh, in Isaiah about this suffering servant who would come, this king who would sit on the throne of David but would re be rejected and from who, or for whom the sins and the weight of the punishment of the world would rest on. He sees these promises in the Psalms and in Isaiah that this one from whom the wrath of God would come on would not remain in the grave, the truth of prophecy, um, of predictions uh, of, uh, that were inspired by God through the Old Testament prophets who spoke and wrote of this Christ who would come. Uh, documents that we have dated before Jesus and yet who point to only this one 
man um, are, are incredible. Again, another work by Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ, uh, walks through the, the hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament and how they could only arrive at this one man, Jesus. And so Paul is making this argument for the centrality of the gospel. He's speaking about the truth of the gospel. He wants them to understand uh, this core basic truth of their belief, the the death of Christ for their sin, uh, the resurrection of Jesus that offered new life, this prophecy and this truth that the Son of God, that God himself would come to provide for humankind in this way, to save a people for himself. Uh, But let's back up to the start of it. Uh, We'll start back at verse 1, but read um, all the way through verse 2 this time, which says this. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So, So the question is, what happens when we believe in this simple truth of the gospel. And so we boiled it down uh, to a really succinct version of this truth of the gospel, of Jesus' death for sin, his resurrection to bring new life, the prophecies that predicted this of old. But, but what happens when we believe in the gospel? What happens when the gospel, this truth of first importance that Paul preached, what happens when we believe it? And so Paul first here just parses through kind of the basic steps of the gospel uh, being presented and, and then believed. And he says the first thing that was happening is that he preached it. Paul says, I came and I shared the good news of the gospel. I preached the gospel to you. I heralded this good news and then you received it. The reception of the gospel is the moment in which someone hears these simple truths of the gospel. They hear this story of God reaching out to save them, of paying for their sins. They have this moment where they realize that Jesus is God in this resurrection that proves it. And they receive it and they believe it in the core, the very innermost of who they are. That the reception of the gospel is the moment of salvation, the moment in which we believe in this truth, that we place our trust in God, our faith in God for the payment of our sins, for the new life offered in Christ, and we receive this truth. We believe it to be true. We receive it in the core of who we are. It says the moment you receive the gospel, then he talks about their standing in the gospel. He says, now now that you've received the gospel that I've preached to you, you've heard the truth, you've believed the truth, now this truth identifies you differently as who you now are. He says, now you stand in the gospel. You don't stand as those who are separated from God. You don't stand as those waiting for the judgment of God. Now you stand in the gospel. The gospel is what holds your feet in their place. The gospel is what defines who you are. The gospel is what brings identity to your life and the status that you now enjoy before God as a son or daughter of the Most High. I remind you of the gospel that I preach, that you receive, that now you stand in. And he says, and by which you are being saved. Now, this is the part that I think we often miss as Christians. And this is really important to um, our philosophy of of what really Christianity is here at River City Church, Um, what it means to be gospel-centered in many ways is this, that, that yes, we believe that it is extremely important that you place your faith in Jesus for your salvation. We believe that you confessing that Jesus was the only way to make a way for your sins, that his resurrection is the only thing that can bring you new life, is extremely important. But what we don't believe is that after your sins are paid for, that you are on your own to become more like Christ. 
We don't believe that your job is to be saved, to, to kind of gain entry into heaven, and then work as hard as you can and put your nose to the grindstone and kind of, and kind of buckle up. So, and lots of other illustrations that mean the same thing. Um, we don't believe that it's now your work to sanctify or to transform yourself to be more like Jesus. What we believe is that the same power of God that paid for your sin, that the same power of God that offered you new life is the power of God that will work in your life to transform you to be more like Jesus. And so do we hope that you die to your sin? Yeah. Do we hope that big parts of your life change? Do we hope that you are, you are transformed to be someone more like Christ, that you step into community through a city group or some other form of Christianity and you continue to hear the gospel and become more like Jesus? Do we hope that you grow in generosity? Do we hope that you grow as an evangelist pursuing those who don't know Jesus to share the gospel with them? Yes, we hope that will, that will happen, but we don't just hope that we, that will happen. We know that if you are a believer, that God is at work in your life to to make that happen within you. Just like you couldn't raise yourself from the dead, just like you couldn't change yourself from being a worshiper of self to a worshiper of Jesus, only God can shift and change the heart of a man or woman to worship him, and only God can transform you. And so Paul says, the gospel that I preached to you, the gospel that you received and were saved the gospel that now makes you stand before God as a child of God is the gospel that is also still saving you, reforming you, and changing you despite yourself. You know, we want to lean into that and lean into the work of God. We want to be a part of that. We want to actively invite the work of the Holy Spirit to transform into who we are. We want to not harden our hearts to our sin and say, well, whatever, I'm saved anyway. But we want to place all of our faith so that we don't get frustrated as we bang against the wall and the fact that God has promised to continue to reform you, to save you, to make you look like Jesus. And I love what Paul does here. And this is the reason I really wanted to take this order that we're going through this day. Is I think in verse 8 what Paul does is he gives us an example of how God worked in his life in this way. Uh, take a look at verse 8 through 11. So he's talked about uh, the fact uh, in verse 7 that Jesus appeared to um, the 500. He appeared to Cephas and to James. Uh, and then he says, then he appeared to all the apostles. And he picks it up, talking about the appearance of Jesus to the apostles, um, with referring to himself as he says this. It says, last of all, to one untimely born, he, also, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or so, or, or they, so we preach and so you believe. I think Paul as he writes those words in verse 2 and 3, uh, talking about the gospel that was preached, in which they stand, in which they're being saved. I think he, he, as he writes that, he, he thinks back on his own story, and that's what kind of arises, verse 8 through 11 here. That, that Paul talks about the moment that he received the gospel. He says, look, I was one untimely born. Um, he's saying, like, like I, didn't, I didn't, I don't think he's talking about his physical birth here, right? Like, I don't think that's anywhere in the past. I don't think he's talking about when he was born as a baby in any way, saying, yeah, if I was just a little older. I don't think he's talking about it in that way. I think he's saying my spiritual awakening, my rebirth was, was later than the rest. 
It took him a while. And so he talks about the moment in which he received the gospel. He says, I was one untimely born. My new birth didn't happen right away. Instead, then Jesus appeared to me later. That the resurrected Jesus, as we read in Acts, appears to Paul on the road to Emmaus. And he says, look, my, my, my belief came later. Uh, I wish I would have come sooner because he remembers who he used to be. He says, I was one who persecuted the church. He talks about his status. He says, look, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. He says, I'm one who, who persecuted the church. He says, I shouldn't be accounted among the followers of Jesus. I shouldn't be someone who God used to plant and start churches. He says, I, I don't belong in that club because of what I did. And he talks about after his reception of the gospel, of the timing in which God saved him. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. See, Paul has this clear understanding that he's not deserving of the role that he has. That Paul doesn't look at his life and say, yeah, I mean, it just makes sense that God would build me this way. I'm a gift to the church, right? Paul doesn't say like, yeah, I took stock of who I was and I thought this was the role I deserved and so I stepped into it. Paul says, it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. Because the gospel has changed me, and so my status before God, the role in which I stand, getting to call myself an apostle, Paul says, he says, it's only by the grace of God that I am what I am. And he says, and his grace towards me was not in vain. And then he talks about the way that God is saving him. He says, look, because of the work of the grace of God in me, he says, I worked harder than anyone. And even then he steps back and he says, it wasn't I that worked, but it was the grace of God that was in me. He says, really, it doesn't even matter who did the work. He says, whether then it was, was I or they, meaning whether it was one of the other apostles that brought you the gospel or whether it was Paul who's saying he's the least of the apostles because there was in Corinth uh, some of these little mumblings and uprisings of, oh, is Paul really an apostle or not? He says, look, it doesn't matter what my status is. It doesn't matter how I received my apostleship because what I brought to you was the truth of the gospel, and that is all that matters. Not the mouthpiece, not the teacher, not the leader, not the pastor, not the name of the apostle. He says the only thing that matters is that you heard the truth of the gospel, the bare bones of Jesus, the Son of God, who came to die the death that you deserve, who brought you the truth of the resurrection that offers you new life that was promised from ages and ages past. He remembers the truth of the gospel. He recounts when he received it, the status in which he now stands because of it, and the work that God is continuing to do in him, despite who he knows himself to be. Now, if you notice at the end of verse 2, is kind of Paul works through those three things. He says, uh, the gospel which you received, in which you stand, and you're being saved. And then there's this phrase there, it says, if you hold fast to the words I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. I think those words there um, arise for us an important question. And I think they arise for us a particularly important question um, in the context in which we live. Um, that, that we are here, um, we sit in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is a part of West Michigan, which is a part of Michigan and then the United States. And so uh, you sit in a country and a place in a region and in a city in which Christianity is maybe not just uh, the truth of the core of your heart and what you believe, but is the culture in which you grew up. And so I think what Paul does here is he, he, he begs you to ask this question. 
he begs to ask you, have I really believed in this thing? He says, unless you believe in Balaam, I don't think he's saying, um, I don't think he's saying like that their belief could really uh, be a failure or their belief could not play out in these ways. I think he's saying to them, you need to ask the question, is this the thing that you've really believed in? Or is this uh, an act you've been putting on? Um, is this something that, that your trust doesn't really lie in? Um, because if you are a believer, then you should see the story of God playing out in your life. Now, now don't hear this wrong. I don't want you to come here today as someone who, who says, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and then have this arise doubt in you. But, but what I do want is for you to not, um, in a blind confidence because of the fact that you've grown up going to a church, or because you're a part of some sort of campus ministry at your school, or because you spent all your life teaching Sunday school, and you've worked through your whole life, and you've never asked yourself this question, where is my faith? What do I lean on? What is the core of who I am? If you've never really said to yourself, do I even know the truth of the gospel? If you've never written out for yourself in your brain or on paper uh, the truth of the story of the gospel of God in your life, I, I just beg you to take a moment and to work through it. Think, think, about, think about that threefold thing. W when did you receive the gospel? When was that moment that you heard of this truth of Jesus, of his death to pay for your sin, of his resurrection? And, and you didn't just hear it because it was the story being presented to you that day. You didn't let it just pass in one ear and go, go out the other. When was the moment that you heard it and you thought, I believe that to be true in the core of who I am? When was that moment for you? How does that moment define who you are today? When you think about yourself, when you think about this is who I am, this is how I would describe myself, how does the fact that God has saved you, that you are a child of God, how does that play into who you think about who you are? When someone says, tell me about yourself, is the first thing that comes to mind your profession or your family or where are you from? Or does the first thing that comes to your mind the fact that God has redeemed you and saved you from what you deserved? Has the standing of the gospel, has that extreme change in the status that you now have before God as a child of God, has that taken hold? Is that a part of the core of who you are? And lastly, um, how are you seeing God continue to progressively save you? How are you seeing God sanctify you? How in your life, when you look back, and, and, and don't do this, don't, don't get discouraged and look at yesterday, right? Like, don't look at yesterday and think, well, not at all. Because uh, yesterday I screamed at my kids, and Tuesday I screamed at my kids, and last Wednesday, I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure I screamed at my kids, right? Don't look at it like that. Don't look at it as day after day. Look back a year ago and say, a year ago today, where was my affection for Jesus? How has God, year over year, January to January, been progressively working in my life. And hopefully if you're a believer, if you claim Christ, you'll start to see this story play out of the way that God is working in your life. And the beauty of seeing that story of how God is working out, the way that he's changing and shaping you, is that gives you hope for next year. You think, hey, tomorrow, tomorrow might feel the same. Like I might feel just as frustrated. I might fall into some of the same sins tomorrow. But by the grace of God, I believe that he, not I, is working in my life. And so a year from now, it will be different that I will, I will feel emotionally different about my affection for Jesus, that some of these sins uh, that are overtaking me, I may make progress on, or if not, I will at least feel secure in who I am.
And so if you're a believer, take stock of those things. Think about when you receive the gospel. Think about how the gospel has transformed your identity. Think about the salvation and the way that God is using it to change and shift you. But if you come to this moment and you think, I'm not sure. I don't know when I receive the gospel. I don't know if this has taken hold of my heart. If you come to this, you think, I'm not sure where I stand before God. Like, if you came here today and, like, man, I'm not going to make you raise your hand or do anything weird, but, like, if in your heart you think, man, I'm not sure how God sees me. Like, if I ask you this question right now, like, is God pleased with you? Where does your heart go? Does it sink? If you're in that moment, you don't know where you stand before God. If you would say, like, hey, I'm not, I'm not sure I see the work of God in my life, then know that the gospel is for you too. And just like Paul, the beauty is that it's not a race of like when you start. It's not about whether or not you believed in this when you stepped in these doors today. It's about whether or not you step out of these doors saying, I believe in this man, this Jesus, the Son of God. I believe that I have sinned that has separated me from God. And I believe that I am in need of someone to take that punishment, to take that penalty that I so deserve. I believe that this life that I'm living is a life destined for death. And I can't resurrect myself. I need new life that only God can offer Believe in Jesus. Place your faith and your trust that only the work of God in your life, that only the transformation offered by him, that, that he is the one that can reform you, that we don't ask for you to come here today and leave here thinking, oh man, I better shape up now. I don't belong here. You are in good company. Look around you. These people are jacked. Like, these are messed up folks. Like I, I some nights, like, I just sit in my pillow and I shake my head, first of all, that, like, what am I doing here? And second of all, oh, shoot, look at all the other people here. Like, why are, why are you all so screwed up? I'm like, oh, I'm pretty screwed up. Like, like finds like, I guess. Like, we don't, we don't expect you to clean yourself up. We expect you to step in here and with us watch as God does a miracle that you can't even believe in your life. So I just, I just say to you, believe in this Jesus this Jesus has changed and saved me. This Jesus rewrites the story of Paul. Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, who was literally rounding up families of Christians that they be jailed and often murdered, or at least die in those jails. Paul says, I was untimely born. My new birth didn't come when I wished it did, but when it came, man, did it take. Believe in Jesus. Second, if, if you are a believer, man, I hope that this elevator pitch, this succinct version of the gospel, I hope that's something that's on your tongue and in your heart. That you know the basics of the truth of the gospel. And if you don't, that man, maybe you just read this chapter like every day this week and you just think through, uh, go read the book of Romans and see like a longer explanation of the gospel and its implications for our lives. Think about this truth of this Jesus, of his death and resurrection and how that played out uh, in, the life, in your life and how that plays out in the story of the world. Know, know the gospel. Know this pitch. Know these things. Because if you don't know the simple truth of the gospel, it's going to be awfully Hard to share it with other people. And that's what we're all about. A third, man, I'd encourage you to learn to tell your story. Learn to tell it. And I think the kind of the three-part thing that we've walked through over and over again today is helpful. Like, when did you receive the gospel? Like, who were you before that? 
What was your status before God? What did your life look like? And when, when did you receive the truth of the gospel? How did that gospel change the very core of who you are, how you identify yourself, what your goals and your hopes and your dreams are? And then how do you see the work of God playing out in your life? How do you see the power of the truth of the Holy Spirit's work in your life to transform you to become more like Christ? Learn to tell that story. Um, we've, we've said this a few times, but we've got a, a weekend coming up here late in November um, where we're going to invite folks uh, to step into membership at River City Church. Um, a, a part of that membership process is going to be just learning uh, how you can tell your story in five minutes. And we're going to give you a, a good guide if you're going to step through that class um, to help you learn to tell your story. Um, you don't have to come to that uh, membership weekend to get that. If you'd like that, man, you can shoot a message to me. Um, you can text uh, the number that's on screen um, all the time up here and just say, hey, I want that thing. And we will get you a copy of it um, any way that we can help you learn to tell that story. But as we close today, man, I just want to close with this. Like, the gospel and the truth of the resurrection is something that, that should shake our very core. That, that it's too easy for us to get numb to these things. It's too easy for us to think, oh, I know that truth because that's a Sunday school truth. I'm just going to let it run in one ear and out the other. I just encourage you this week. Maybe it's rereading this chapter. Maybe it's writing your story. Uh, maybe for you, um, you're here today and you're hearing this gospel for the first time. and It's just believing in that. But I want you to think about, like, what is my next step with this? Like, when is the last time that I reflected on the grace of God in my life? Uh, have I ever received this truth of the good news? Do I know how to pitch the gospel? Let's not just let this word gospel become empty in some sort of buzzword. Let's not let the truth of just the basic core of our belief become like JV truth and then we move on to more complicated things, meaning the things we like to fight about. Like, let's let this be the very core of who we are, that we would be a church that is centered on the gospel, that it would be the core of who we are as individuals, as a body, and the motivation for everything we do, that others might hear the truth of this Jesus who has come to pay for our sins and offer us new life. Pray with me. God, we were abundantly far from you. God, the distance between your holiness and goodness, the, God, the difference between our character and your character is so wide. Almost so much that it's hard to even start to think about because it's scary to think about who we are in comparison with you and your great love and wisdom and power. And so, God, I, I just stand here and we, we want to tell you that we are thankful, God, that because of Jesus' death, that the penalty for our sin, if we trust in you, will never find us. Not because it will go unpunished, but because you took that punishment upon you, yourself. God, that you offered up Jesus to take the wrath that we, we deserved. And that, God, our lives, this shell of who we were created to be, this this identity that sin had robbed us of, that in Jesus' resurrection, you offered us new life. God, you offered us a life that is established on the standing of Jesus before you, not on how we perform. That God, nothing we can now do can change the way that you see us. That God, when you look at us, 
how you feel about us if we believe in you. So you look at us and you say, that is my beloved son or daughter. That is the one in whom I am now well pleased. Because you look at us and our account is not our own. It is the account of Christ who has offered us life in you. And God, now we look forward to continue to see how you are working in us. To transform us to become more like Christ. To let this identity that we have in you as sons and daughters of Christ, as those who are redeemed, as those who are without sin, that that identity would start to take hold and transform us and that we would be different because of it. God, thank you for what you've done. And God, we look forward to seeing how you continue to move, shape, and change us. In your name we pray. Amen.